0: It has been said that if you want to find out what is most important to someone, a good way to do that is by looking at their bank statement or their calendar. Your bank statement, of course, reveals where you spend most of your money. And your calendar, of course, reveals where you spend your time. And of course, an audit of how you spend your time and your money can tell you a lot about your priorities in life. But we could add a third test to these two that also reveal something about our priorities in life. And that is by looking at your prayer list. Looking at your prayer list. When you pray, what do you pray for? What are the things that you are regularly bringing to the Lord in prayer? What prayer requests are so important to you that you continually seek the Lord to answer them. Are your prayers most often about your own personal safety, your health, your job, your school, your success? What do you pray for? Also, who do you pray for? Are your prayers primarily for yourself or for your family, your friends, your brothers and sisters in Christ, your neighbors, people you don't even know across the world. What we regularly pray for and who we pray for can tell us quite a lot about our priorities in life. Paul, in this letter to the Colossians, gives us a glimpse into his prayer list, his priorities. He shows us the things that he's earnestly seeking the Lord for on behalf of this uh, group of new believers, the Colossians. As we noted last time that we looked at Colossians, Paul is writing this letter uh, from prison to a group of Christians that he doesn't even know. He's never met these Christians, but he's heard about them from his fellow minister, Epaphras. And we mentioned last time that Paul likely discipled Epaphras in Ephesus several years prior and sent him to bring the gospel to Epaphras' own hometown of Colossae, where he's planted several churches here in the region, and Epaphras' preaching has clearly borne fruit, Um, and now Epaphras has come back to Paul in prison, and he's brought word to Paul about that fruit, about these new Christians in Colossae who are growing in their faith and are also encountering challenges to that faith. So Paul is now writing this letter to encourage and teach these new Christians so that they would continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that they heard. He says he wants to present these Colossians, these Christians, mature in Christ. That is his goal. Christian maturity is Paul's priority for this church. That is why Paul says he toils and struggles in the power of God on behalf of all the churches, not just the churches in Colossae, but all the churches that are in Paul's care so that they may be presented mature in Christ. This is Paul's job. This is his priority in life. And that priority is reflected in Paul's prayer here in Colossians 1. As we saw last time, he began uh, this prayer. He's letting the Colossians listen in on the things he's praying for. He began his prayer in verse 3, in thanksgiving. He, he thanked God for the fruit that he has borne in these Christians through the preaching of the word, the gospel. God is the one who has done this great work and so he is the one that Paul is thanking. That fruit is their faith in Christ, their love in the spirit for all the saints and the hope of glory that is laid up for them in heaven. He thanks the Father, for growing this fruit of faith, hope, and love in the lives of these Christians. And ever since Paul has heard of their faith, he's not ceased to give thanks to God for this gift. And now in verse 9, our passage this morning, his prayer shifts from thanksgiving to intercession. He moves from thanking God for what he has already done to asking God to continue that work in them so that they might grow unto maturity. He's interceding on their behalf. He says in verse nine, from the day we heard about you, we have not ceased praying and asking for you. Paul has not stopped praying for these Christians. This is reminiscent of of Paul's other letters where he tells the churches he has not ceased to pray for them. He, He tells all the churches this. Remember in Ephesians, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. He tells the Romans, without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. And so it is with the Colossians. From the day he heard about their faith in Christ, Paul has not stopped praying for them. He does not stop praying for these churches because this is his priority, that they would be mature in Christ. Now, of course, this does not mean that Paul does nothing else besides praying all the time. We know that Paul was a very busy guy, who did a lot more than just pray. Praying without ceasing, as Paul encourages Christians to do, doesn't mean that you keep a constant prayer running through every waking moment of your life. Rather, Paul is talking about a regular, faithful, consistent prayer life, like Daniel, who prayed three times a day, every day, morning, noon, and night, so much so that his enemies knew exactly where to find him, Uh, at his set prayer times he kept a regular rhythm of prayer the apostles also kept the hours of prayer as we see in the book of acts so offering the morning and evening sacrifice of praise is what paul means by praying without ceasing likewise paul keeps this regular rhythm of morning noon and night prayers He does not stop remembering these churches in his prayers when he prays at these regular times and so all Christians are called to maintain a regular steady prayer life prayer ought to be the steady diet of the Christian just as you ordinarily wouldn't miss breakfast lunch or dinner so your soul ought not to miss regular consistent communion with the Lord in prayer it doesn't have to be complicated It doesn't even have to be long. We think sometimes we need to be up praying hours and hours every morning. It doesn't have to be that. But it does need to be regular and consistent. Start every day with a simple prayer. Lord, thank you for making me. Thank you for saving me. May your will be done in my life today. Go to bed with a simple prayer. Thank you for sustaining me today. Thank you for your gifts in my life. Now give to your beloved sleep. Start somewhere and add to it. Prayer is like oxygen for the Christian. You need it to live the life of faith in Christ. Prayer is one of the chief ways that we exercise humble reliance upon the Lord. It's how we acknowledge our dependence upon him. It's how we acknowledge God altogether. Christ has opened up the heavenly sanctuary for you to draw near to God in boldness and with confidence. So do not neglect this means of God's grace. So Paul, in his regular prayer times, has not stopped praying for these Christians. He remembers them when he prays. Again, Paul's goal, his aim, is to present these Christians mature in Christ. So his prayers are, of course, ordered to that end. He is praying for their maturity, and he's asking for these things regularly. Uh, These are things that Paul continues to ask over and over again of the Lord. And and there are things that we must continue to ask the Lord for regularly in our own lives. It's not as though uh, you pray for something and you simply check it off the list and it's done. No, God wants us to keep asking, to keep praying for certain things. And that's what Paul does here. He continually asks God, he continually thanks Him, and he asks for specific things. He doesn't just pray for it once and move on, he keeps asking for it. Prayer is God's appointed means for us to take hold of the blessings that are ours in Christ. God wants us to ask for these blessings. Uh, These are the blessings that we need in order to grow up into maturity, and God wants us to keep on asking for them even as he continues to give them to us. Like my children, we set out food on the table for them, but we still expect them to ask. Can you please pass the potatoes. May I please have some of that? It's there for them. We've prepared this meal for them, but they need to ask. Paul is asking for these necessary things, these necessary things on behalf of these baby Christians. They don't know what they need yet. They don't know how to pray, like the disciples teach us, Lord, how to pray. And Paul is doing that by showing them, these are the things I've been praying for you. They don't understand what Christian maturity consists of, And so Paul is asking for them on their behalf, and he's also teaching them with this letter and us so that they and we can begin asking for these things too. He gives us a a shorthand description of what Christian maturity consists of and how he prays for it. This is a picture, a template of what it means to grow into maturity in Christ. These are spirit-inspired prayer requests spirit-inspired priorities for the Christian life. And of course, they're not exhaustive, but this prayer does give us a template of Christian maturity. If you want to be mature in Christ, these are the things you need to pray for, for yourself, for your family, for your church, and for others. And these are the things that we must desire, that we must pursue. So what are those things? Well, Paul fundamentally prays for two things in this prayer. He prays first that they may be filled with a certain kind of knowledge, and second, that they may live a certain kind of way. Knowledge and behavior, things to be believed and things to be done. Within these two headings, he fills out the details of what they both mean, what they look like. So let's consider both of these. First, let's look at this knowledge that Paul prays for, the knowledge that is vital for maturity in Christ. Paul says in verse 9, he's praying that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul wants them to be filled with knowledge, specifically the knowledge of God's will. Okay, when you hear that term, God's will, what do you think of? Some might be inclined to think of God's secret will. Okay, that God, that Paul wants us to somehow uncover God's secret will for our personal Lives as individuals? Is it God's will for me to go to this school or that school or to marry this person or that person or to take this job? That is not what Paul has in mind here when he speaks of God's will. Yes, the Lord does lead us in many ways. We pray about decisions, we seek counsel from wise people in our lives, and the Lord uses all these to guide us in the way that we should go, but that's not what he means. When he speaks about God's will that they need to know. This is not the knowledge of God's will that Paul is praying for these Christians to have. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Okay, the things that have been revealed belong to us. That's what we need to concern ourselves with. The will of God that Christians should concern themselves with is God's revealed will, the things he has made known to us and to our children, that we may do them. Psalm 143 says, teach me to do your will. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, control your body in holiness and honor. 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This isn't a secret uh, that we have to find out. This is something that God has revealed. God's will has been given to us, revealed to us in the scriptures. God has revealed what he wants you to know concerning what he wants you to do. He has made known who he is, what he's like, how he acts. And he has made known what he wants you to do. And that is the will of God that Paul is praying for these Christians to be filled with. He wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God's word, God's revelation. God's word tells us what pleases and what displeases God. And Paul wants us to be filled with that knowledge. Notice he adds the qualifier, though, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, filled with the knowledge of God's will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What does that mean? Well, we should read this with a capital S on Spirit. The Spirit is the source of wisdom. This is the Holy Spirit, the wisdom and understanding that comes from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who inspired the text of Scripture. Men were carried along by the Spirit in recording the revelation of God's Word. The prophets spoke by the Spirit, under the inspiration of the Spirit. But the Spirit also applies that Scripture to us that we might grow in wisdom. Wisdom is being able to apply what God has said to new situations. Okay, Last week, Pastor Rich referred to Solomon's wisdom in handling the situation with the two mothers who were fighting over the baby. Uh, one baby had died, and the other baby was living, and they were fighting over which uh, baby, uh, or who that that baby belonged to, there was no command or case law that Solomon could reference about how to handle that specific situation. Solomon needed wisdom to be able to apply the principles he had learned in God's law to a new situation. Likewise, when we are immersed in the word of God and filled with the knowledge of what pleases and what displeases God, The Spirit uses that knowledge to grow us in wisdom to handle new situations. Like Solomon, we can make proper judgments about things. But the will of God is not limited to God's commands, what God wants you to do. Paul also has in mind, as well, God's plan of salvation in Christ. He'll go on to develop this out in the letter, and we'll talk about this at length more in future sermons, but this is what Paul calls the mystery of God that has been revealed. Okay, there was a secret thing, there was a mystery that God has made known in Jesus. And he summarizes this mystery as Christ. Christ is the mystery that has been revealed. God has made himself known in various ways throughout history, but in Jesus, he has revealed himself most fully. Christ is the mystery made known. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God has made himself known in a deeper way through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Paul wants these Christians to grow in that reality, to grow in their understanding of who God is in Jesus and what his plan is for the world, what his plan is for their own maturity and where they're headed, where God is taking the world. He's making all things new through Jesus, and we have been graciously caught up into that plan, and Paul wants us to be filled with that knowledge. So the Spirit gives us greater knowledge and wisdom in the gospel. The Spirit bears witness to Jesus. He makes him known. Jesus said in John 15 that the Spirit would be sent for that very purpose, to make Jesus known. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who reveals Jesus. The Spirit opens our eyes to see the truth about who Jesus is. And it is only through the Spirit that we have this knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. So Paul prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, growing in their understanding of what pleases and displeases God, as well as God's plan for them in Christ. Secondly, Paul prays for a certain way of life a certain way of life. Verse 10, he says that he wants them to be filled with this knowledge so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Paul doesn't want the Colossians to simply know things, to have all the right doctrine, knowledge about God, knowledge about his will for their lives, his plan of salvation. This knowledge has a certain purpose in our lives. What is the purpose of all this spiritual knowledge? Paul tells us he prays that they may be filled with this knowledge, wisdom, and understanding so that in order that they may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. He wants that knowledge to result in a certain way of life. Walking, of course, is a metaphor for living for our way of life, acting and behaving in certain ways. Their way of life should be worthy of the Lord and fully pleasing to to him. Let's consider both of those phrases. They may strike us as odd, uh, worthy of the Lord. How could anything that we do be considered worthy of the Lord? Aren't we unworthy? This is not an incidental comment or phrasing from Paul either. He talks this way in several places. Listen to just a few. Ephesians 4, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Philippians 1, let your manner of life be worthy of the of the gospel of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2, walk in a manner worthy of God. Hey, what does Paul mean by speaking of this way, being worthy? Well, there's a push in our culture to use words of positive affirmation to boost our self-esteem. I've seen uh, many t-shirts and signs and stickers and notebooks. You've probably seen these too that say things like, you are worth it. You are worth it, you are worthy, you deserve it, you are enough. Have you seen these signs and stickers? I'm sure this is all well intended, but it is fundamentally misguided. That's not what Paul has in mind here. Yes, we're all created in the image of God. We have dignity, we have worth and value in being image bearers, but the scriptures clearly teach us that as a result of our sin, we are in fact unworthy. We deserve hell and damnation, and we are not enough. Romans 3 says that every mouth has been stopped by the law. We have all sinned, and in a very real sense, are unworthy of God's gifts. We have no place to stand on our own. So how could Paul tell us to be worthy? Well, in the gospel, we have assurance that God has graciously intervened. He's not left us in this state of unworthiness. He offers us forgiveness of sins, his own robe of righteousness and real transformation in our lives. He's given us a new status. We're declared righteous, declared holy and new. And because our true identity is now bound up with Christ, everything that is true of him is now true of you and I, true of us. And so we're called to now live in a manner that is consistent with what we have been given. Living lives worthy of the Lord means living a life That is in keeping with the Lord. Consistent with belonging to him. Think of an uh, equilibrium or or a set of scales. One side should match up with the other. Our, Our lives should reflect the character of the Lord. Does your life reflect a life that is transformed by the gospel? Your true life is hidden with Christ in God. Does your life here reflect that? In other words, does your earthly life reflect your heavenly identity? Are you living consistently with who you are in Christ? Jesus says in Matthew 10, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who have received the grace of God should give up any way of life that does not prioritize the Lord Jesus above all. The Spirit has made known to us who Jesus really is, and so our lives should reflect that. The grace of God trains us to live in a certain way. It makes us zealous for good works, to please our Lord. Justification and sanctification belong together. They cannot be separated. Because God has saved us by his grace, we now have a new desire to please him. In fact, we're now able to please him by walking in his ways. This is why Paul further describes this manner of life as pleasing him in every way. So worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every way. Let's consider this phrase. Being forgiven and transferred into Christ's kingdoms means that we cannot be indifferent to sin. We should want to live lives that please the Lord that bring honor to his name. We want to please God with our life, our thoughts, words, and deeds. This means that we're not trying to spend our lives uh, primarily pleasing ourselves or pleasing other people. The first question we ask in anything is not, does this please me or does this please him or her? But does this please the Lord? Does this please the Lord? That is our priority if we are to be mature in Christ. We're made to please God, and we were redeemed that we might be able to do so. Is my speech or conduct worthy of Jesus? Will this bring him honor or shame? What would please the Lord most in my life? This is why we need the knowledge of God's will to know what pleases him. He's not an arbitrary God who likes this one day and then doesn't like it the next. He's revealed what he's like, and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, So we need the knowledge of his will to know how to live a life worthy, to know what is pleasing in his sight. So how do we please the Lord? What does that life worthy of the Lord look like? Well, Paul spells it out in his prayer here in four characteristics. Bearing fruit, increasing in knowledge, being strengthened, and giving thanks. Let's look at each of these characteristics briefly here. First, he says, A life that is worthy of the Lord, that is pleasing to him, is bearing fruit in every good work. Jesus said a good tree produces good fruit. As we abide in the vine, Jesus, this should result in bearing fruit in our lives. The word of the gospel bore the fruit of faith, love, and hope, and Paul prays that it will continue to bear fruit and increase in the lives of these Christians bearing the fruit of the Spirit in every good work. The knowledge of God's will should result in this kind of fruit. As James said, we're not merely to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Now, we have access to tons of information today, tons of knowledge out there. Podcasts, articles, sermons, books, audiobooks, all kinds of all kinds of things in our pocket or in our car, and these are all wonderful gifts from the Lord that we should take advantage of. But we can easily develop a habit of constantly consuming information, but not doing anything with it, not doing anything about it, not bearing any fruit in the way that we live. We can get into a kind of analysis paralysis, thinking, I just need to read another book before I go and do that thing over there. I need to hear another talk before I get started on this thing. Uh, You might read a lot of theology books or devotional literature, but you should ask yourself, where is the fruit? Where is the fruit from all of this knowledge? How is your character being formed? How is it changing the way that you lead your family or serve your spouse or love your children or do your job at work or pursue your schoolwork? All of our growth in the knowledge of God's will should result in bearing fruit and every good work. Like the blessed man of Psalm 1 who meditates on God's law day and night, this meditation results in becoming a tree that bears fruit in its season. So bearing fruit is pleasing to God. Secondly, Paul mentions increasing in the knowledge of God. Is Paul repeating himself here? Didn't we just talk about knowledge of God's will? Well, why does he mention it again? Increasing in the knowledge of God. Well, here he mentions knowledge of God, whereas before we were speaking about knowledge of God's will, Paul's describing something of a cycle or a spiral in the Christian life as we grow into maturity. As you grow in the knowledge of God's will, this should result in bearing fruit, doing God's will, obeying his command, applying wisdom, and in turn, doing the word opens you up into further growth in the knowledge of God. You really can't separate these things out. Jesus describes the same thing in John 17. When you do the will of God, we grow in our knowledge of God. As you know his will and obey it, you come into a deeper knowledge of God himself. There's a relationship between knowledge and living. Not merely knowledge about God, but coming to know him in relationship. Jesus said to know God is eternal life. And you get to know God better as you obey him and walk with him in prayer and dependence upon him. So we have a cycle of continuing to increase in the knowledge of God. And this is part of a life that is pleasing to God. Third, Paul mentions being strengthened. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. As as Paul goes on in the letter, he says he works and he toils he exerts great energy with god's power he does all this work for the churches striving toiling with god's power for this i toil struggling with all his energy that he works powerfully within me the christian life is lived in god's power we don't live a life worthy of the lord in our own power in our own strength but in god's power In our own power, we will quickly burn out. We won't endure. We won't run uh, with patience. We'll run out of patience very quickly. We can only grow up into Christian maturity with his glorious might, with his power, his resurrection power working within us, the power of his spirit. If God has the power to raise Jesus from the dead, surely that same power can give you endurance and patience to persevere through troubles. We need his strength for endurance because the race is hard. There are troubles and trials along the way. And Paul's prayer is reminding us that this path to maturity includes regularly returning to the source for strength. We need to look to the Lord for this strength. Confess our dependence upon him in prayer. Uh, Only then can we continue steadfast, enduring to the end. And only then can we walk in patience, as he mentions here, toward the Lord and toward others. When we are walking in his strength, we can have the true joy that comes from the Lord. This doesn't mean that you sit around and wait. That you sit around and wait for a special motion of the Spirit in order to do anything. No, we ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God within us. But we walk in humble reliance upon the Spirit, striving and making every effort to please God. Lastly here, he mentions giving thanks. Giving thanks to the Father, verse 12. Living a life worthy of the Lord includes walking in gratitude, giving thanks to God for creating us, for redeeming us. Paul lists out the things to thank God for. He gives us shorthand, concrete reasons to thank God. These are rich descriptions of what God has done for us in Jesus. As we grow in the knowledge of God, we grow in our understanding of what he has done for us in Christ, and that results in greater gratitude for what god has done often our understanding of our salvation starts out simple like the blind man in john 8 all i know is that i was blind but now i see but then it grows as we grow in the knowledge of god and his gracious ways toward us uh, that gratitude increases let's briefly look at this we don't have time to look through all of these in detail but I want to briefly look at each of these things that paul gives thanks to the father for He says, he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Okay, we're first unworthy, but then God qualifies us. He makes it possible that we would share in the inheritance of the saints, the new creation. Paul connects our redemption in Christ to the salvation of Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. Israel was in slavery in Egypt, but the Lord had promised them a land as a possession, as an inheritance. And likewise, the New Testament teaches us that this pointed forward all along to a greater inheritance for the saints, the new heavens and the new earth. The whole world renewed in glory is the true promised land, the inheritance. And now both Jew and Gentile in Christ have been qualified to share in this hope of glory, resurrection life. He says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, just as Israel was delivered out of Egypt. So, we have been delivered in a new Exodus from the darkness of sin and ignorance. We're no longer under the tyranny of the devil, under the slavery of sin and death. He's delivered us, and He has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We're now under the gracious rule of God, of God's beloved Son, His appointed King, literally in the kingdom of the Son whom He loves. This is where our true citizenship lies. We've had a transfer of loyalties and identity. And we're in this kingdom now. He says, in whom, in this king that he loves, his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It is through this king that we have redemption. In Jesus, we have been purchased from slavery, delivered from the Pharaoh of sin and death, and now our sins are forgiven. We've been cleared of our guilt and debt. We have peace with God. For all of these glorious realities, we are to give thanks to the Father. And as we grow in our understanding of this great salvation, we grow in gratitude toward the Father for his great love for us. If these things are true of us, how could we not desire to please the Lord in how we live? And because these things are true of us, now that we are in Christ, we're able to offer up lives that do actually please the Lord. He is pleased to receive our sincere obedience, however weak and imperfect it is, because it is offered through the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's goal is to present these Christians to the Father mature in Christ. That is his priority. His prayers are ordered toward that goal. He is consistently asking for these things from the Lord. And this prayer is a template for Christian maturity. It ought to be our prayer for ourselves and for each other. These are the things we need to be asking the Lord to work in us as we strive for Christian maturity. We should earnestly desire these things to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, meditating and growing in our understanding of what pleases the Lord and who he is. And this knowledge should result in a life that is lived to please the Lord, that is worthy of the Lord, that is fitting with the calling that he has placed on us. This worthy life is one of bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, walking in the strength that he gives, and giving thanks for his glorious salvation that he has won on our behalf. This is the path to true Christian maturity. And these are the things that we need to seek from the Lord. And these things are yours in Christ. These gifts have been purchased by his blood for you. The Lord desires to give you all of these good gifts. As Jesus said, ask, and it shall be given unto you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son,